0: The Blacksmith's Boy, Heel and Toe, by Edward W. O'Brien, artwork by Norman Rockwell. Saturday, Groundhog Day, was partly clear, and Jimmy said we would have white weather soon, but Pop didn't believe in the groundhog. Monday morning, though, was bitter, and the shop was gloomy, so I hooked down the swinging gas lights over the anvil and lit both burners. Jimmy started the stove and made the forge fire. The shop roof was high and peaked and wind whistled through a broken pane in the skylight. My breath blew in white steam. Pop was sorting shoes, and I wondered how he held that cold iron barehanded. But his hands had hard brown calluses, and he never minded. Where his thumb went on his hammer handle, a smooth hollow was worn in the tough hickory wood, almost to the middle just from his thumb his forge scraper quarter-inch round was shiny smooth from his thumb and the steel there was worn past the middle it started snowing and the flakes blew into the frozen wheel ruts making white streaks in the dirt i saw the stable boss from the gas works coming up the street leading five horses he hollered to me i opened the door and jimmy took in coconuts and bess by the halters and the stable boss brought in Bruno, Easter, and Big. The floor shook as they pounded over it with ponderous, stolid tread, and dirt jumped from between the planks as the floor sprung under their weight. They were chained up, and each blew twin jets of frosty steam against the wall. "'Mornin', Franco,' the stable boss bellowed. "'I don't want to be out no rawer than this one.' "'You're right about that. She's down to sixteen degrees.' What if she is? Just so these plugs is roughed up, let her come, and let her freeze. Sharp all around? Sure, sure, do them all sharp. I don't want the foreman giving me hell tomorrow if these horses start sliding around, and I got twelve more to be sharp before the day's out. Jimmy let him out, and snow swirled in. Jim took one hasty glance up the snowy street, slammed the door, and remarked, It's a good day for women and cats. He had hardly pulled the first shoe when I let in our baker with his milk leg mare, and behind him came a roan and two mule teams, Any and Meenie and Miney and Mo. Around the corner plotted Johnny Gunpowder, leaning against the wind and leading four sorrels from the foundry. Pop hollered to tie them outside. Johnny must have figured on it before, because they wore blankets. He tied them up, came in, sat on the bench and stretched his feet across the forge, soles up, and took out his makings, saying there was no use going back till he had a sharp horse to go with him. When the jobs began piling up too fast, Pop sent me over to Uncle Sharky to give a hand, and as soon as I told him, Sharky put down the trades union advocate that he was reading and said he'd be there in a tail switch. When I came back, A dozen horses were tied outside, and men were walking them up and down, two at a time, to keep their blood moving. And except for wheel and hoof tracks, the street was smooth and white. Wagon axles creaked, and the wheels made a rasping, brittle crunch in the snow. When Sharky came, he sized up the floor jobs, bit off a piece of his plug cut, and set to. The shop was warm now, from the stove and all the horses a thick cloud of smoke hung under the rafters, and now and then it sucked towards the broken pane near the peak and was blown back. And every time Pop fitted up a hot shoe, another cloud went up from the scorched hoof, and it smelled good. I didn't think of it then, but when I was a man grown, and the shop was gone, and its days gone with it, that acrid hoof smoke odor would come back at times in memory and set up its own particularly sharp nostalgia. It was a hectic day, with only a sandwich pause at noon, and right smack in the middle of it, who shoves his nose in the door but Zeke. Behind him was a husky six-footer. I knew instinctively it was McCann, and I got all writhy inside. He was hatless, and his bright red hair was bushy as though it seldom felt a comb, but it wasn't out of place. It was just that kind of hair. He wore a short, belted coat, and under one arm he carried a rolled apron. His gray eyes shot round the shop sharply, and he split his mouth in a grin wide as a mule's. I said to myself, I bet he's got bridal teeth. Pop's hammer stopped, and he looked inquiringly at Zeke. Frank? He's the fellow from Philly I spoke about. Jack? Jack? "'Shake hands with Frank Farrell. He's the man we're up against.' Pop shook. "'Jack. Looks like Zeke's got his reins over a good horse. Heard a lot about you.' "'Guess maybe you have, Farrell. I'm pretty well known round and about. "'So you're the village blacksmith.' His glance quartered back and forth, and he took out a cigar, bit the end, and lit it with quick, sure movements. He left the band on and puffed lazily. "'Hell of a small place you got here. "'Ain't hardly room enough here to swing a cat by the tail. "'Looks like a one-man business in a one-horse town.' "'The bluntness of it drove all the sound from the shop. "'The sound stayed gone for a moment and then came back, "'for old Jimmy, staring, "'had absently dropped his horse's hoof with a thud, "'and he had to pick it up again. "'Pop settled his derby a little farther back on his head "'and looked squarely at McCann. "'And I can't recall a man.' They could bore his eyes into you like Pop, but the gray eyes bored back, unperturbed, and they sized each other up, frankly, each cool and appraising. That appraisal was swift, but started a pulse beat in my stomach, for McCann was diving in shallow water when he disparaged Pop's shop. No, Jack, this is not a one-man business. I always carry a helper, but at times I do most anything. Even brush flies, if need be. You do, huh? Well, I ain't no fly-brusher, no time. He peered through his cigar smoke at the shoes on the wall. I've worked shops, had more spares in one corner than you got in the whole diggin's. Came another pause, Pop intent on punching nail holes with a pritchel. He had been friendly enough, but McCann's manner and tone flicked out and struck steel to the flint in his makeup. He sloshed his shoe in the slack tub, looked at McCann abstractedly. He was slower replying this time. Yeah, Jack, we do have a small stock. But as you say, this is a small town. However, we're busy, as you can see, and this talking ain't nailing on a shoe. Drop in later in the week and we'll fix things up. Frank, why can't we run her off tomorrow? Jack's all set. Maybe Jack is, but this storm isn't. Horseshoeing comes first now. I told you that before, Zeke. Zeke and Jack conferred in whispers. Frank, Jack's come on from Pittsburgh specially, but he admits you're justified in delaying. I'll come in Wednesday and we'll dicker on the day. Right-o, Zeke. If my horses are on the street, I'll dicker. They went out, and the day's rush swirled around us again, blotting out for the time. McCann's and Zeke's and Betts. "'But Pop was thoughtful. "'The winter dusk closed down, "'and Mother called, "'Supper!' "'From our window, Pop passed the coal scoop over the alley. "'She put dishes on the scoop, "'and he hauled it in three times, "'and she didn't have to come out in the storm. "'Then briefly there was quiet, "'except for the sleet beating against the windows, "'an occasional stamping hoof, "'and Tom Mule wheezing in the corner. "'He had the heaves bad.' In the gaslight and flickering glow of the forges, shadows scurried up and down the walls, horses' heads silhouetted grotesquely huge, with ears standing up, and when the hanging burners swayed, the shadows wavered, chased each other, and ran away in the dark corners under the loft stairs, and behind Jerry Mule, sound asleep, beside his heaving mate. After supper, McCann came back and ensconced himself on the bench, without much to say at first— But a man can be mighty critical and superior in a few words. His outright condescension and patronizing tone irritated and rankled, and the confounded, cussed confidence of the man. He did one thing this way and another that way. He had outworked this man and outclassed that one, shown another how to do so-and-so, until Sharky spat out his tobacco cut in disbelief and annoyance. There was a strange buckskin on the floor, and he drooped on his chain. "'Dozing, resting one hind left and leaning on his toe. "'Before picking him up, Jimmy laid a hand on his rump. "'The buck reared his head and rattled his chain "'so that Pop looked over. "'Hold on, Jimmy. Don't touch that horse. He's a kicker.' "'Oh, I don't know, Frank. Maybe he's strange. I'll take him gentle.' "'McCann horned in. "'Ah, he's full of spirit, nothing else. Show him who's boss.' "'I know he's a kicker. You can see him bow up his tail.' When a horse kinks his tail that way, he'll kick. Kick hell, says McCann, walking over. Not if he's handled right. I'll pick him up. I'll do the picking up, Jack. Tie him two ways, Jimmy. Pop talked to him, smoothed his forelock, rubbed through his mane, working along his saddle, soothing and low. When he reached his rump, the buck let fly, but Pop was in front of that lashing hoof. Frank, Jimmy said, let me try again. Suppose he hits you. You've got a family. Ah, McCann insisted. All this horse needs is to learn who's boss. Let me show you. Easy now, all of you. It's my shop, and I won't have any of you hurt, not while I'm here. Jimmy, bring the twitch. The twitch was a wagon spoke with a rope loop in the end, and Jimmy gathered up the horse's nose, put the loop over it, and twisted tight. Standing away from him, Pop slid a cautious hand down the buck's hip and his leg and whoa babied him while the buck mouthed at the herd of the twitch nervous when pop lifted up on his fetlock and asked him to up boy he kicked twice past the leather apron so fast we could hardly see his hoof whip out and back but pop was clear pop swore hell of a time to have a kicker and a green one at that he must be fresh from the west take off the twitch jim we can't fool no more we're gonna throw him McCann peeled off coat and shirt, exposing a hairy barrel chest and arms corded with muscle, and Jimmy whispered, look at him stripped down at the least chance. It ain't even mild in here, either. Here you are, Jimmy, McCann ordered. Hand me that block and tackle off the wall. I'll tumble him quicker than he can lay back his ears. Whoa, Jack, Pop said quietly. I give the orders around here, and we don't just throw a horse. They threw a stallion and censor and ruptured something in him. He never got up again, and we do it different. Across our shop was a steel I-beam, and hanging from it, a heavy three-shiv chain block. Pop buckled a wide leather belly band on the buck, hooked it to the chain block, drew his four feet up close with the block and tackle, and McCann, biceps bulging, slacked off on the chain and down went Mr. Buckskin slowly. He squealed and fought, but down he went. They rolled him ignominiously onto his back, slid a three-by-four between his legs, and lashed his feet to the timber. At the indignity of it, he flared his nostrils, snorted, and whinnied shrilly. Alphonse and Apollo, the two brewery, dapple-gray mates, arched their Clydesdale necks, pricked their ears, and answered his whinny piercingly as they swung wide on their chains, whipped their tails, and pawed. But Pop went ahead calmly while Uncle Sharkey sat on the buck's head, unperturbed, watching Pop. He shot him, cold-rasped the shoes so they shone nickel-bright, and blacked the hose besides, just to show him we ain't like little fellers that can't do it, he said. He loosed the ropes. Sharkey got off his head, and the buck came up in a scrambling rush, and shook himself violently. But when he was let out, he was as docile as an old nag. I had forgotten about bedtime— and wondered why Mother let me stay. When I went in, she didn't mention McCann, but said she watched from the window, so I knew why she didn't call me, because Pop had a green horse, and Mother knew the blacksmith business, too. During the night, I woke once or twice, and the anvils were still going. Tuesday breakfast and dinner were served in the shop, for that spell ran 36 hours without sleep. And when the last one went out, stepping gingerly, on his sharp new shoes. The men wearily untied their aprons. Pop went directly to bed and slept until Wednesday noon. That evening, arrangements were made, and I got scareder by the minute, thinking of the hundred. Friday was the day. Four town blacksmiths would judge the shoes, and Tom Jackson was to be the final say. He would be fair to both. Everybody knew that. Billy Evans, our grocer, phoned that he'd bet with another grocer from St. Mary's Parish and said money was down in the shops uptown and across the stone bridge. Terry O'Neill had a side bet, the loser, to get in the shafts of a buggy and pull the winner from Capital Five Points to the lower bridge. Bull Davis and Eddie Fisher wagered that Pop would outwork McCann or they'd haul the other two up Market Street Hill in a two-horse coal wagon. A barrel of flour was stacked against Mick McQuaid's white bulldog, and Mick said earnestly to Pop, Frank, the old lady needs that flour, that's certain, but God knows and you know how I can't never part with cue ball. So ladle it out to McCann the way I did to that dog catcher. You remember? At quitting time, Thursday, the woolen mill superintendent stopped in. He wore a gray derby and always carried a cane to the mill. Mr. Farrell, "'On the way home, I usually stop at the Alhambra for a drop of brandy, "'and there's been considerable talk about you and McCann. "'His size and reputation seem to have impressed them up there.' "'Mr. Patterson,' Pop said, half sitting on the anvil horn and folding his bare arms. "'What they say may be true. "'I don't say that it isn't, never having seen McCann work. "'But rum isn't sold over an anvil or across a loom. "'And a piece of cloth or a horseshoe can't be made on a bar.' I make my shoes on the anvil. Quite true, Mr. Farrell. I've heard a lot of cloth woven over the mahogany at that. But I prefer what comes off the loom. However, I stopped in to mention that I have a 50 on you. If you lose, think no more of it. Because in any event, McCann will know he's had a day of it, I'm sure. He removed one gray glove and shook Pop's black hand, not as though he didn't mind the coal dirt on it, but as though he didn't think of it one way or another. I thought of a saying of old Jimmy's. Dirty hands, a clean living. Friday morning we had just finished building the forge fires when we heard men's voices coming down our street, and Zeke slid back the door. Behind him were McCann and a half a dozen others. There weren't any preliminaries. Pop told McCann to look at both forges and take his choice, but McCann waved that aside. "'Nothing doing, Farrell. Use your own forge. "'I don't want no excuses after this is over that you weren't at your own anvil.' "'McCann,' Pop said in a level way he had at times, "'there will be no excuses after this is over. "'Wouldn't be if I was making on the bench. "'That excuse business goes double. "'Keep that under your carrot top.' McCann winked knowingly at Zeke, hung up his coat, and said his fire looked fine as a woman's on baking day. He unrolled hand hammer and tongs out of his apron, tied it on, and flipped the blower handle around easy. But the fire shot sparks, and he stopped the blower dead. Pokered, scraped, and laid his hammer on the anvil, ready. The whistles blew seven. Each shoved three shoes and a piece of bar steel in the fire, and the blowers took hold. They started slowly, and Jimmy whispered he'd bet Pop would let McCann drop the first shoe. Over the anvil edge, Pop belted the shoe ends. They turned up for heels. On the anvil's right side, he straightened them. After healing the second, the first was hot again, and he welded on a piece of the bar for the toe. He was extra careful about that toe, and McCann's shoe dropped on the iron plate in front of his anvil. First blood. There were a dozen men in the shop, and after two or three shoes, everyone eased up. Around nine o'clock, two men came in and asked how it was going. They talked low, as men do in the front room of a wake before they get to the kitchen where they can speak up, or the way they do at the polling place when the count is on. Pop shot a clinker at them and asked, Where's the corpse? And McCann drawled, Right, Farrell, wake them up. They stay that way. They'll never get their jaws open tonight when we tap that half, and you and me can't get away with a whole keg. Ten o'clock. "'Seemed as though they'd hardly begun, and I wished it was just starting, or had never started. "'Then I wouldn't know McCann was a shoe and a half ahead. "'At eleven, I wished harder it had never started, for he was too up. "'I felt everyone was looking at me, and I stared at the anvil or into the fire, "'pretending to be busy getting coal, especially though I didn't look directly at Pop. "'I watched him covertly, and wondered why he wasn't nervous.' "'but I couldn't see he was bothered any. "'Perhaps he sensed how I felt, "'for once he looked at me and laughed, "'and I felt some relief, but by noon I was worse again, "'for McCann finished the morning three ahead. "'The judges and McCann and Zeke had dinner with us, "'and Mother was pleasant, but not quiet herself. "'I knew she was worried "'and didn't like Pop betting all that money. "'She said he earned it too hard on that anvil to chance it, after dinner, I hoped that McCann would go up to lose and drink a lot of beer, but he didn't. He was in a more pleasant mood than the other night, maybe because he was three ahead. But Pop wasn't to be outdone in friendliness in his own house. So, the others listening, he and McCann, clay pipes drawing well, discussed horses and horseshoers and colts and broodmares and shops and foundered horses and what to do for hoofcorns, They discussed Philadelphia, Norristown, different ways to stop a horse from cutting, and the track records of Antio, Highball, Sonoma Girl, Nancy Hanks, Peter the Great. And in all of the discussion, they were most perfectly in accord on what an awful scourge to a blacksmith was an ignorant, bullheaded ignoramus of a stable boss who thought he knew how a horse should be shod. All this talk, just as though it was any old noon hour, Before one, Pop watered the pigeons, as usual. They tied on their aprons and blew up their fires. Two o'clock. McCann still three up. A man came from the true American and asked, What's what? Scribbled something on an envelope and went out. I thought of the morning paper and the kids in school and what I would say if Pop lost. One thing I knew for certain, if he lost... "'I'd be in plenty of fights tomorrow.' "'There were so many men in the shop now, "'I couldn't see between them to the back forge. "'But I listened with dread for McCann's shoes to drop. "'Some men offered odds on McCann, but no one took them up, "'and Pop never let on he heard, "'but looked inquiringly at his judges, "'who were muttering over the last shoe he'd tossed down, "'and asked, "'What's the matter with it?' "'Well, that outside heel ain't got just the right cant to it, Frank, "'if you ask me,' Embassy Chaloros said.' And McCann came over and looked, but said nothing. "'Hell's fire,' Embassy Pop said. "'These is work shoes, not for a lady's pacer. "'What do you say, Tom?' Tom Jackson looked at it, looked pointedly at Embassy, then stared into his tobacco pouch, his probing finger loosening the fine cut. Never a word did he say, but his silence was eloquent, and so was Pop's. He simply reached out his tongs for the shoe, laid the disputed heel on the heel, and whong He hit her cold. Silently, without looking, he handed it back and turned to his fire. Ambassy glanced briefly at the heel and tossed down the shoe. But McCann hadn't looked at the shoe. He was looking at Pop. Puzzled. For that shoe was a number seven and practically cold. He made no comment. "'and went to his forge while Pop spun his blower hard, "'and he changed from then on. "'Everyone sensed the difference, "'and the shop was quieter, expectant. "'Not long afterward, Pop said, "'McCann, me bucko. "'You're along the rail and too far out front to suit me. "'I'm too gated, though, and this trotting ain't enough. "'I can see that. "'So I'll switch to a pacing gate. "'We're starting even this heat.' and I'll beat you on this one. Think so, Farrell? Let's see. McCann challenged, and the anvils rang sharper as both let out a notch, and each was used to a long driving day. McCann struck heavier, faster blows, but Pop's anvil was talking too, and his shoe dropped as Jack finished towing. For a long time afterward, there was no more talk between the forges. The anvils were speaking now, By three o'clock, McCann had dropped back to two ahead and the shop began filling up with men. We heard our phone ringing often for word was getting to the other shops and they wanted to know, but mother would not give them any satisfaction one way or the other. By three-thirty, McCann was cut to under two and his red-haired, freckled arm swung the four-pound hammer as though it were a toy and his anvil block quivered. But for all his pounding, pop edged up, and Jimmy talked to me low. See how it is, Sonny? Your daddy doesn't seem to strike as hard, but he does. Besides, he hits in exactly the right place, in exactly the right way, and doesn't have to undo some that he's already done. Jack thinks an arm like his can't be beat, but Frank's catching up, and when he does, he'll belt it out with that McCann at McCann's own game. So by and by, we'll show McCann a little muscle work, too. The afternoon wore on three hundred forty five and four o'clock, four hundred thirty and close to five, and Pop worked to within one shoe of McCann, in spite of all McCann did, and he did plenty. Then a man came in with two kettles. The workers and judges had a glass, and the others took a seventh inning stretch. The bench overflowed with men. Every keg was a seat, and half a dozen squeezed onto the loft stairs. Tom Jackson ordered the hasp put on the door, but men outside rubbed dirt from the windows and peered in. Others craned necks through the alley window trying to see the men at the forges. I'll never forget that last hour, and never will any of those who watched. McCann peeled down to his red undershirt. Pop was still behind that one shoe, and it was hard for me to breathe because my stomach was in a ball. Both men were lost to everything now but the swing from the forge to the anvil, the heels to be turned and the toes to be welded. Nip and tuck they went, almost heel and toe abreast. But when Pop started singing Molly Branigan, I knew McCann's dog was as good as dead. Pop's hair glistened with sweat where it showed in front of the derby that rode his head the way a shield fronts the prow of a war galley, and all of him, Natural and acquired, was black. Hands, arms, neck, and face were blacker than his hair. His dark eyes sparkled in that black mask of a face, and the thought came to me that with all the brutal work of it, this was what he really loved best, best of all. The smell of the soft coal, hot iron scale, his own healthy sweat, and the feel of the cross-peen hammer in his big right fist. "'wailing away, up and down, up and down, let her have it. "'Above his own blows and those of McCann, "'his voice rose in the rapid sing-song minstrel beat of the piece. "'Oh, man, dear, did you never hear of pretty Molly Brannigan? "'In truth, she's gone and left me, and I'll never be a man again. "'Not a spot on me hide will the summer sun air tan again, "'since Molly's gone and left me here alone.' "'Fur to die.'" McCann's red mane shook to the beat and nodded to the words like a percher and stallion prancing to music. But before pop could start another verse, McCann's baritone took it up in a ringing, bellowing challenge. Wild as the wild Irish moors round Inishcara, where he said he was foaled. "'Oh, the place where my heart was, "'you could easy roll a turnip in. "'It's large as any paving block "'from Dublin to the Devil's Glen.'" If she wished to take another, sure she might have left mine back again, and not and gone and left me here alone for to die. And both forges driving like fury for all the song. Pop had a Stilson wrench grip on his tongs as though he'd just begun instead of wailing away at that anvil since seven a morning, and his arm from the strong fulcrum of its elbow rose and fell the same as it did ten hours ago. And like black magic, the iron, the black metal from which comes the name of his trade, shaped itself hurriedly at his will. Striking or not, his hammer never idled often. Squinting a moment at his shoe, he'd keep his hammer dancing on the face, and he'd break the tempo, clatter the heel and ball, then swiftly, wallop, 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 he'd strike in miniature thunder and McCann a dance an answering challenge back from the back forge as though they were two fiddles, one dropping the melody, the other taking up the tune, and as old Jimmy said about McCann, the big devil having himself a fine time of it, still confident as all hell. Then Pop called to McCann. "'Now, Jackie, old boy, old boy, tune up your anvil, for it's a lively piece we'll play this last part of the hour. "'I'm your man, Frank. I ain't never been headed.' The back turn of the tracks ahead, coming into the stretch, the bits in me teeth, I've a belly full of wind and my stride ain't faltering, let her go. McCann went, and the Lord knows his stride wasn't faltering. Not that any of us could see it wasn't. He surprised everyone, maybe even Pop, for no one believed mortal man could work harder or faster than he had the last brace of hours. He drove like an iron man. His undershirt was wet across the chest, and shoulders, and he scattered the men in front of his anvil the way he flung hot scale, taking shoes out of the fire. Ah, but Pop looks good to me. Pop looks good to me, I told myself happily. For with all Jack's lambasting, Pop was coming on, coming on, part of a heel, then a heel, then part of the other heel, and no one was sitting now. Men still pounded on the door, and in my pockets, where nobody could see, I clenched and unclenched my fists, and my palms were sticky. His heats came out of the fire just as fast as McCann's, and he flung his own hot scale in a flashing semicircle. Glittering sparks flew around his bare arms and beat against his leather apron as his hammer hit into the hot iron with vicious, sullen thumps. His anvil strained against its block clamps, and when he rounded out on the horn, the hollow, booming thundered through the shop, up to the peaked roof and down again, as though trying to find a way out. The cadence changed to the sharp, clear ring of the face, then back to the melodious horn like a big bell tolling, but fast and insistent. That last quarter hour was something grand to see and remember two black maniacs in a welter of muscle and sweat and skill. McCann, for a brief part of that last quarter, hung tenaciously to the pace the way a burr clings to a filly's tail, sweating out the best that was in him, but in that final, inhuman drive, pop-inched up irresistibly, with a surge of power and speed that McCann couldn't stem, and when the whistles blew six, he was ahead two heels, almost a toe, Almost a whole shoe, and bedlam broke loose, drowning out the whistles. Men pounded one another on the backs, shook hands, and let out whoops that could be heard over at Throp's pattern shop. McCann loosed a yell that cut through the others like a sawmill whining through oak, and I heard the pigeons flying around upstairs, excited at the commotion. McCann threw his hammer on the floor, strode over, and with both hands shook Pop's right and he said he'd never swung against a better man or one as good. The outcome had changed him. The cocksureness had come out with the sweat, and a better man stood forth. "'Now, Frankie, me boy,' he said, "'do you please be sending old Jimmy up to lose and nail a handle on that keg just for me? A dram less wouldn't quench the thirst that's on me.'" Through the alley window I saw Mother looking out, between the curtains, resting her hands on the sill. She wore a dark dress with a white collar and white lace down the front and she waved to me and smiled. All the men went up the street to lose. I watched them go, and I can see them yet. Pop and McCann striding in front where they belonged, shoulder to shoulder, black derby and flaming hair, both in their prime, young and strong. Two good men, two damn good men I know now, looking back at it. Two of a kind that you don't see anymore. Men don't have to be that good anymore. Machines do now what their strong right arms and big fists did then. Right arms that can ease down now and rest. Big fists that can relax, and perhaps, on many a night, clench again in sleep. The Hickory Handle of a cross peen Hammer I hope you enjoyed hearing this story, and that you now appreciate it as much as I do. I have to give a special thank you and a salute to the Saturday Evening Post for allowing us to use the images of this painting in this video. The Saturday Evening Post is truly America's magazine. It has chronicled the events and cultural shifts that have shaped the country's character for 200 years. It's a cultural institution. And we initially got our hands on this story by becoming members of the Saturday Evening Post and looking back through their archive. It is unbelievable how much history is contained in all of the past publications. As a benefit to our viewers, the Saturday Evening Post is offering a discount of 20% on any of their online or print subscriptions. Just use the code Craftsman at checkout and we'll put a link to all of this below. Now we searched hard for a representative from Edward W. O'Brien's estate in order to secure permission to share this story publicly, but in spite of our best efforts, we have been unable to locate anybody. So if you would like to contact us regarding this project or story, please just shoot us an email to our website. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the Saturday Evening Post for publishing this story 80 years ago and for letting us share it here again today. And thanks to Edward W. O'Brien for thinking of and writing down this wonderful tale.